from Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Yes, 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 we are back. It is rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. And we are recording this just days away from the 2020 elections. Um, It is probably one of the most anticipated elections ever. Um, A lot at stake, um, a lot of emotion around this. I know I am personally feeling kind of burned out by it all. Um, I don't know about you. we are going to talk about it in terms of everything that is at stake for LGBTQ Americans. And actually beyond that, we are, um, actually have uh, a renowned journalist who is known for international news. So he's actually going to give us some input into how this is going to affect everyone around the world um, because they are all watching and um, have their <clears throat> finger on the pulse. Um, Obviously, this is an election unlike any other in that the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely had an impact on how people are voting, um, why people are voting, where people are voting. Um, also, the, um, because so much of, of uh, the pandemic has affected how people are voting, many people have already voted. Um, the Ballots that are already in have totaled 50% of the entire 2016 election. So um, for a lot of people, this is a done deal. Um, And uh, the rest of us are are still waiting. I'm in particular, I have not cast my ballot. I'm planning on doing that in person on election day. And... uh, that that itself will be an adventure. So our guests today um, are from the two arms of the Blade publication. Um, from the Washington Blade, we have the international editor, journalist Michael Leiters. And from the Los Angeles Blade, we have editor-at-large, journalist Brody Levesque. And they are both going to tell us um, everything they know about the election coming up. Um, and give us their particular brand of insight. So, Brody and Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. Thanks Hi, Rob. for having me. Hi, Brody. Hey, Michael. <laughs> so, so, um, so um, let, let me start here. There are over mm-hmm. 500 LGBTQ candidates um, across the country. Um, what 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 do you know of these folks, and uh, what are your thoughts on um, some of them running? I will let Michael go first, and then I will kind of loop back <laughs> with some of the other races. Great. Thank you. And, Rob, thank you for having me here uh, today. And as you said uh, correctly, there are hundreds of LGBTQ candidates running in this cycle, anything from local offices to uh, state legislatures to Congress, some of them are running for re-election. And it's a very diverse group of folks. So, for example, in Delaware, 
we very well could see the first openly transgender person elected to a state Senate on Tuesday if Sarah McBride wins her race. And it seems pretty likely at this point that she will. So that's one race that we here in the D.C. area are really looking at. Uh, there's other folks who are LGBTQ running for Congress. Uh, Gina Ortiz-Jones uh, in Texas is a really notable example. She ran against Will Hurd in the last cycle and lost by 900 votes. And she's running again in this cycle. And her district is, it spans about 30% of the U.S.-Mexico border from just outside of El Paso to the uh, immediate suburbs of, of San Antonio. And she's been facing a lot of uh, transphobic attacks from her opponent and the Republican Party in Texas. But uh, she could very well win her race this time around. And uh, I'm from New Hampshire as a point of reference. And uh, the person who represents my mother is Chris Pappas. He's openly gay. And he is among the other folks who are already in Congress who are, <clears throat> excuse me, who are uh, running this time around. And he himself is, like, like Gina Ortiz-Jones, has faced some anti-LGBTQ attacks during this campaign. Uh, his, race is, his race is fairly tight. Uh, I'm not going to predict the outcome of it uh, here, but um, certainly there's many, many different races that we are looking at, and there is a real opportunity for our community to make additional gains in the um, in the political sphere, whether that's local, state, or federal. So we'll be certainly watching what happens next week on that front. Excellent. I wanted, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up um, a gentleman who has been uh, a guest on our show about a year ago, Representative John Hoadley of Michigan, who is running to be Michigan's first openly gay congressman. Uh, John, of course, uh, has had to endure a plethora of homophobic and just absolutely nasty attacks uh, in the race. Uh, the incumbent Republican representative, Fred Upton, uh, in many ways uh, has absolutely exasperated that problem and, if nothing else, cheered it on. So that's been uh, another issue. Uh, here in California, we're looking at a variety of uh, LGBT candidates running uh, across the spectrum from assembly to Senate seats. Uh, and, then of course, we have uh, one of our uh, Boosters of our show, uh, and a shout-out here to Representative Mark DeCano, U.S. Congressman, uh, who represents out in the uh, Riverside, Coachella Valley area. He is uh, running for a re-election as well. Um, most of the things that we're looking for, as Michael pointed out, is that this is the first time that we've had a slate of this many LGBTQI candidates across the board, and it's a really critical uh, races in critical areas, but let's us also not forget um, our allied uh, community, uh, State Representative uh, Daniel Hernandez uh, from uh, Arizona, who represents an area uh, south of Tucson, uh, was a member of former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords' uh, personal staff. As a matter of fact, it was Daniel 
who saved her life in the unfortunate assassination attempt at that Safeway years ago. But Gabby's husband and someone that the uh, uh, folks are backing uh, very much so, at least in Arizona, is uh, Captain Mark Kelly, the astronaut who, of course, is running for a Senate seat uh, in the state of Arizona. So as Michael pointed out, we've got some seats that we're paying very close attention to. Um, There's a lot of things. I also want to give Sarah, who's been a guest on the show and a dear friend of mine, I actually was one of the first journalists to actually interview her on campus at American University. Um, And she's also a a fellow West Wing aficionado. A big shout out. I'm really glad she's going to end up with that seat. So props to her. I think that's phenomenal. Anyway, so that's kind of an overview from Los Angeles. Yeah, and I just no, wanted to add on. I yeah. wanted to, and this is Mike. I just wanted to mention a couple of additional races. Uh, there's uh, two uh, openly gay men of color from New York City. Richie Torres is one of them, and they will make history as the uh, first openly LGBTQ, uh, first openly gay men of um, color to become members of Congress next week. Uh, next week and. Richie Torres in particular is really interesting because one of his opponents that he defeated in the primary was uh, Ruben Diaz, um, the gloriously homophobic, transphobic uh, member of the New York York, uh, State Assembly and the New York City Council. And uh, Ruben Diaz lost to him by quite a significant margin during the primary in June. So that's another point of history that we're going to be seeing happen next week. next week with the congressional races around the country. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> thank you guys for, for going through um, really the tip of the iceberg, because I mean, uh, like I said, there's over 500 and we just really talked about it. We're a fraction of those here. Um, but I would point to this as one of the positive byproducts of what we've been going through in the past four years under Trump and the complete anguish and anger that he has generated by um, inspiring so many people of the community to step up, step out, and be visible. Um, I also want to ask you guys about um, the role Pete Buttigieg has been playing. Um, First of all, um, kudos to Pete Buttigieg for becoming so visible that we actually know how to pronounce the name Buttigieg. So, um, you know, which is an accomplishment in itself. Um, you know, he's no longer just Mayor Pete. Um, but Pete has mm-hmm. been on Fox News as kind of the mouthpiece of the Biden campaign and done actually a really good job of shutting down a lot of um, counter arguments and counter comments. Um, what, what do you guys see? this huge visibility for the whole LGBT community that is emerging and what do you think its impact is going to be in the next few years? Michael, go. Yeah, I think, you know, we can certainly have a discussion about, you know, Pete Buttigieg and whether he truly represents the LGBT community's diversity. You know, we can certainly have a discussion about his politics as we did during the primary cycle, but I think anytime you have somebody in that position who's openly, in this case, openly gay and has such a high profile, and in my personal opinion, he really represented our community very well in the primary cycle, 
that is inevitably going to be a very good thing. And so he certainly broke a lot of ground with his campaign, and now he's taking that goodwill to support uh, Joe Biden in the final days. And I did see that. <clears throat> I, I, I don't watch Fox News at all, uh, I confess, but I did see the clip, I think it was yesterday, that came out where he uh, – he challenged a Trump heckler at an event, and I believe it was in Florida. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was in Florida. And he engaged him, and then he asked him the question of, do you support, uh, do you condemn white supremacy? And he said yes, and then he just took that as an opportunity to say, see, we agree on something, and that's something that I wish that uh, our current president would would do. And it was just such an effective way to disarm this person and to really, you know, hammer home that what's at stake in this election. And so, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think mayor, former mayor Buttigieg has really represented our community very well, just by his example of somebody who's out again, we can debate whether he represents the full diversity of the community. We can debate his policy positions and so forth, but Visibility counts, especially in an era and in a time when we are living in a country where the administration is attacking our our rights as a community, is really uh, trying to set the LGBTQ rights movement back, and so to have somebody so visible like Pete Buttigieg, in my personal opinion, is only can only be a good thing because it brings visibility to our community on such a national stage. Right. Brody, I would, your thoughts? I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with Michael on that. I think the other thing that has been critically important about Mayor Buttigieg's uh, complete approach as a surrogate for the Biden campaign has been an absolute sense of pragmatism and an even-keeled approach to some of the even more inflammatory um, you know, atmospheric things that are being said out there uh, in the greater political arena. And I think that the other part of it is that he's conveying the message that the LGBTQI community is a greater part, is part of the, you know, is a small part of the greater whole, but at the same time, you know, shouldn't be discounted or marginalized. And I think what's also critically important is that uh, given the light of, uh, the Republican, just the Republican could have tell when it came down to placing, you know, an anti-choice, anti-LGBT, anti, you know, healthcare person on the high court in in the form of Judge Barrett. Uh, Pete's comments on that, his reflective statements on that, uh, and his approach to it has been such um, that. There's a sense that uh, your average voter, maybe your independent voters or your voters who may not necessarily be conventionally aligned with the LGBTQI community in terms of allyship or even greater awareness, can latch on to what the mayor is saying. And there's an understanding. And, you know, Pete's sense of pragmatism, I think, helps in the long run. Um, I'm just hoping that uh, it, it, it plays itself out uh, once we get to uh, – you know, election day itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you about, um, you both about uh, one amend or one uh, uh, item on one of the ballots in one state 
It's the only one that talks about same-sex marriage. And I think it is sort of just an interesting one because it's there, not that it will have an effect one way or the other. Um, and I don't know how the polling is going for it. But it's an initiative in Nevada, question two, um, that is designed to remove from their state constitution the prohibition against same-sex marriage that was passed back several years ago. Um, and it is literally asking to remove that language from the, their constitution since um, the U.S. You know, Supreme Court ruling. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and um, what do you know of its prospects? I'll weigh in on that. Uh, and I, you know, Virginia has certainly had this discussion, uh, especially after marriage equality became a reality in the state uh, almost more than five years ago at this point. And the quest with, with regards to the question out of Nevada, uh, and I just pulled it up uh, before we were talking, um, and it says a yes vote supports this constitutional amendment to recognize marriages between couples regardless of gender et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Same-sex marriage is law across the United States of America. That um, is the reality. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with um, the, with Justice Barrett uh, moving forward. But the reality of the situation in this country is marriage equality is the law, period. Now, there still may be folks who oppose that uh, for whatever reason, but I think, you know, just, um, you know, what we're seeing with this question in Nevada, I think it's just reflective of reality. And I, I don't know the specifics in terms of, you know, the percentage of folks in the state who support it or not. But, you know, at face value, the question is, you know, um, the question is just reflecting um, the reality on the ground in this country. Yeah. Brody, what are your thoughts? I think that the biggest thing is that uh, it's this ballot initiative or question two in Nevada is kind of a pointed way of saying we need to clean this up and we need to make, you know, it concrete. Uh, and as Michael said, uh, Ogilvie and Windsor decisions did that. But at the same time, um, this this makes it an absolute and. One of the problems that we're going to probably see pushing forward, or at least I, in my opinion, pushing forward, is that anti-LGBTQ law groups, particularly the Alliance Defending Freedom, are going to go fishing for plaintiffs to bring a suit before a friendly uh, district court in what's considered a conservative circuit court of appeals area, such as the 7th the 11th or the 5th to try and push a case on fact track to SCOTUS uh, to have Ogrebethel overturned. And uh, Michael's colleague, Chris Johnson, the Blades White House correspondent, um, had written a piece, and Michael can correct me on this, I think a week or two ago, that specifically addressed the what-if issue based on the mm -hmm. fact that Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel uh, Eliotto uh, had more or less telegraphed that they're going to be more than happy to revisit Ogrebethel and get rid of it. With Barrett on the high court and a 6-3 split, it makes it very, very possible. 
looking at these ballot initiatives like the one that Michael mentioned in Virginia and, of course, Nevada's question, too, um, you know, what's the real-world impact on it? If the states have already enshrined Bogerbethel in their constitutions by removing these things, then even if SCOTUS does abruptly turn around mm-hmm. and overturn Bethel, it still affords LGBTQ couples protection in states, okay, that, you know, these things have been removed. Now, there's a lot of argument to be had about how much of a patchwork quilt of annoyance that will bring about, but that's the mm-hmm. political reality when you have a court that is structured this way, and more importantly, we've had four years of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump loading up the Circuit Court of Appeals, okay, was judged, mm-hmm. many of them, quite frankly, not qualified to even sit on the bench, mm-hmm. all right? And, and this ADF, I, I'm, I, I'm sitting here saying that I am in full, absolute belief that they are out there fishing now for plaintiffs to bring cases forward in the 5th, the 7th, and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals jurisdictions so that they can go after Ogrebefell and Windsor. I, I don't know if Michael agrees with me, but that's how I look at it. Yeah, and I, you know, I think about, you know, public opinion is always something that interests me. And there was a poll that the Human Rights Campaign released just a couple, uh, maybe less than two weeks ago. Seventy percent of people in the U.S. support marriage equality. Um, that's a lot. You can't dispute that number. Now, again, folks like the Alliance Defending Freedom and these other anti-LGBTQ legal groups might, or, and I agree with Brody, they're probably trying to find plaintiffs to challenge, uh, to challenge Obergefell and this, you know, get that to the Supreme Court, especially now with Barrett on the bench. So it'll, it remains to be seen whether that, whether that becomes a reality. I, I go back to Virginia again. Uh, Virginia just a few months ago enacted a law that added uh, gender identity and sexual orientation to the state non-discrimination law took effect. The Alliance Defending Freedom has already found plaintiffs to challenge that law, and that effort took a, the, the effort to get that law passed took a very long time. And the only reason that it be, was successful was because Democrats took control of both houses the Virginia General Assembly just over a year ago. And because of that, uh, Democrats, with the support of the Democratic Governor Ralph Norman, were able to push through not only this non-discrimination bill, but all sorts of other progressive uh, progressive issues that became that progressive bills that became law. So it doesn't take much to get something like the Virginia non-discrimination law challenge or or doesn't, you know, these groups are kind of looking at any way they can challenge these laws. And uh, with marriage equality, that certainly could be an issue moving forward. So we'll just have to wait and see. But it's a real it's a real concern for people. But, you know, again, I go back to the poll right. that we just talked about. 70% of Americans support marriage equality. You can't dispute that. That's, again, that's another fact. That's another fact on the ground we have to consider. Yeah, no, I think that's a really issues. great point. And yeah, I think I think that's a really great point. Um and I wanna kind of emphasize the thing that Brody just said about um the you know, if if in a doomsday scenario um a case gets up to the Supreme Court, 
um, the three justices that he mentioned are able to convince the three other conservative-leaning ones to go their way, which is is not a sure thing um, because of what just happened with um, the, the Title VII uh, case. But um, should that go that way, it, what could happen in Nevada with the removing what seems to be an archaic uh, rule on the books now, if that happens in the other states, which has not, by the way, in a lot of the other states that did have anti-same-sex marriage rulings or, or laws put in their constitutions, et cetera, um, it is a good strategy to target those seemingly archaic um, uh, laws and, and statutes and get them out of there in case the bad thing does happen. So I think that's, that's a, um, a, a solid and interesting strategy I think we should consider. Um, I want to shift it now to um, the proverbial elephant in the room, i.e. Donald Trump himself. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the horrific concept of um, him possibly winning. I, I have to share last, four years ago, um, as we were entering into this cycle and things looked good for Hillary Clinton, um, Brody and I actually had a phone call. He called me uh, the day before the election and was watching, had his fingers on the pulse of all the polls, and uh, let me know that things were not actually looking that good, which um, scared the, the heck out of me uh, then, um, and made points of, of states to watch and mentioned um, uh, New Hampshire, and which I did keep my eye on. And election night when uh, New Hampshire went to, to Trump, um, I kind of knew even at that point based on Brody's information that uh, the way the dominoes were all going to start falling. Um, is, are we lined up for that again? Is, is, are, is this something we need to watch out for? I think yeah, I'll, I'll take a crack at that. I, you know, uh, 2016 and 2020 are very different years um, for the whole host of reasons. Most notably, I think we're in the middle of a absolutely catastrophic pandemic that you know, has killed over 220,000 people in this country, almost, I think, upwards of eight and a half million Americans are, have had COVID at this point. Our economy is, is just tanking in spite of everything that we're seeing with, you know, the GDP numbers coming out. So it's a really, really difficult time. And I think you don't have to, you don't have to analyze the situation very very much, you know, very, very hard to conclude that there's been very little, if not any, leadership from the top, i.e., the Trump administration, to actually get a handle on what has been happening here in this country since uh, February and March when the pandemic began. And this is having a real impact on people's lives, whether they're LGBTQ or otherwise. So um, the sense that I get just from, you know, my, you know, my position here in D.C. reading what's coming out in polls and so forth is that people are really quite upset by how the Trump administration has handled the pandemic. That said, uh, he still does have support in this country, and we need to acknowledge that. But it seems as though the polls are, as we see them right now, are leaning in the direction of Biden winning the 
election. I have 538 pulled up on my laptop here as we're talking, and it shows that there's an 89% chance of uh, Biden winning the Electoral College. Let's see if that plays out. But it seems as though the wind is at the back of Democrats moving into Election Day. We also have to remember that I think the number that I most recently saw that upwards of 70 plus million Americans have already voted. So, and those numbers tend to indicate that turnout is really strong and that would benefit Democrats. So, you know, we'll wait and see what happens next week, but it seems as though the wind is at the back of Biden and the Democrats at this point. And there's some, and you know, you know, Trump has never had the support of the majority of people in this country. That has never been the case. And if anything, it seems as though, his, you know, his numbers are even worse now than they were, say, before the pandemic started. But we'll wait and see. Um, right. Let's hope we don't have a repeat of 2016 with um, poll numbers that we see before the election proving to be wrong. But um, I think that's where things stand now. But, you know, we have five days. We still have five days to the election and anything can happen. And it's also 2020, so who knows? <laughs> who knows exactly. So, exactly. Um, yeah. Brody, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, looking at, and again, polling numbers are what polling numbers are. One of the things mm-hmm. that I have found interesting and have had conversations with the pollsters about is, you know, on a state-by-state basis and where we're at. Um, Texas, traditionally a red state. <laughs> split right now, almost evenly between and the former vice president. Georgia, same thing. Florida, same thing. Michigan, same thing. Wisconsin, same thing. We're seeing a pattern here. And the pattern, I think, is directly, as Michael said, reflective of the fact that the American populace and and electorate have absolutely had it uh, with the mishandling Uh, of how the Trump administration has screwed the pooch on the entire coronavirus pandemic and the mess. The Mm -hmm. other thing Mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of Americans who are, um, they're experiencing what I call bully fatigue because with president Trump in particular, it's relentless, whether it's in person on television, in a tweet uh, or even the white house press secretary, It's always bully, bully, bully. And the problem is the audience for that is fairly limited. And even they are starting to, I think, get a little fatigued from it. Um, Most American citizens look towards the Oval Office and the institution, and they hold it above the rest. And to have someone who is occupied you know, the space behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval, who talks, acts, walks, and sounds like a New York mob boss, a la John Gotti, if you will, um, mm-hmm. has gotten to the point where it's just distressed way too many people. Uh, Michael's right. I mean, it, it, Trump's never had a majority support. But the problem is that the people who have been supporting him, unfortunately, control the purse strings in the Republican Party and the Republican vote when it comes down to putting politicians into play. So what you end up with is you have not just sycophants, but you also have actual politicians who have been supportive of the president, 
Um, and 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 just even calling him that is just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. It, have been supportive of Trump. I, I think that we do have to be very careful. As I indicated in that phone call to you four years ago, I was looking at the numbers, and I was looking at the Electoral College, and I had a very sinking feeling, and everybody thought I was crazy, and I ended up with a lot of steak dinners on bets I made prior to that night. I'm not going to do that again. I really honestly, truly am hopeful that the vice president will pull it out. We need a plurality, though, of greater than 315 to 320, because any way it happens, we know that this White House and this administration, with a complicity of a corrupt attorney general, there's no other way of painting Bill Barr but corrupt, is going to make life miserable when it comes down to making the determination. I'd also like to caution our listeners, and I'm sure Michael will agree with me, all right? It's not over until the fat lady sings on this election, folks. Get out there mm-hmm. and vote, but more importantly, come 11 o'clock or polls closing on November 3rd, it's not done yet. This election likely will not end for another probable 20 days past November 3 as they tabulate ballots, and they have to work their way through the inevitable court challenges that the Trump campaign has already telegraphed and the president himself has already telegraphed that he's going to put up. And the other thing is American democracy for years has relied on the convention of goodwill. That does not exist with this president. There is no Mm -hmm. such thing. We have to be careful. Michael. Right. Yeah. To add on to what Brody was saying, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Michael. Go ahead and finish, and then I've got another. Yeah, question I for was going to say uh, I was I was having a conversation yesterday with a good friend on his Facebook live stream in South Florida, and I, I say this only to point out just geographic uh, location. I'm a 15 minute walk from the White House right now, where I'm talking to you, and there is a real concern here in D.C. that the elect, you know, going back to what Brody said, we're not going to know the results of the election, the outcome of the election for several days, if not weeks. And there's also an expectation, as he said, that the Trump administration either will not accept the results if if Trump loses or will contest them. And there's a real concern that we might see some sort of unrest, not only here in D.C., but across the country. And that is something that, you know, I never thought that I would be saying that, you know, talking about the U.S., you know, we talk about that, you know, political unrest in other places around the world, not here in the U.S., but there's um, there's a public acknowledgement, you know, here in D.C. I've had conversations with friends about this here in the last few days that, you know, there is a pod, there is a chance, and I, I certainly hope to God that that doesn't happen, but there is a chance that we could have some sort of, political unrest in the streets, not only here in DC, but across the country. And we need to be, we need to be prepared for that. So there's real, there's growing concern about what could happen if the election results are challenged by Trump and the administration. And I've even heard reports of, uh, I haven't seen them yet, but myself, but I've heard reports of, you know, businesses here in DC starting to board up windows, getting ready for Mm -hmm. what could, um, potentially happen next week. And let's, let's, let's truly hope that doesn't happen, but there's a real concern as Brody said, this administration has proven time and time again, that 
it doesn't respect uh, political conventions, political norms. It does what it does to maintain its grip on power. It doesn't play by the rules, et cetera, et cetera. And um, people are genuinely becoming increasingly concerned that uh, we might see something next week that is not going to be good. So um, let's let's hope that doesn't happen, but we need to be aware of that potential happening. Right. No, uh, absolutely. I want to shift gears here a little bit um, and actually shift this, Michael, a little bit, a little bit towards your wheelhouse. Um, you wrote a, a really great article about LGBTQ activists around the world who are watching our election. And one of the things that the Trump administration did that was a little bit out of character for all of its anti-LGBT action that it has taken with, you know, banning transgender from the military from, um, you know, uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, stopping uh, transgender services, from removing uh, LGBTQ rights from the websites, from, you know, um, and on and on things that they've done. One thing that did happen was a, a um, initiative or a mandate or a communication out to, to the international um, community to not to decriminalize being LGBTQ internationally, although I don't know that they that was more than just a smokescreen. But um, what is happening internationally, both viewpoint and uh, what you see as a reality if Trump were to be reelected? Yeah, I want to touch on that initiative for a second, and thank you for bringing it up. It was something that uh, the White House announced in 2019, then U.S. Ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, who has a long connection to California, it was tapped to lead this initiative. I There's some real questions about whether it's even effective, and um, so it remains to be seen. I personally think it was announced to as part of you know, part of a very cynical way to uh, criticize Iran. Um, the Trump administration, as you know, has been very critical of, of Iran and their nuclear program and everything related to it. And Iran is one of the countries in which uh, homosexuality is criminalized by death. So I personally and a lot of other activists with whom I've spoke would agree that this was part of their effort to discredit the Iranian government. So we'll take that aside. Um, I think I think it's fairly safe to say at this point that the Trump administration does not have a lot of international credibility in general because of the way that it conducts itself, the way that it aligns itself with autocrats and you know dictators. I think of the you know you just have to look at Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin. That is as crystal clear of a demonstration of that reality as anything we've seen. Mm -hmm. So um, U.S. standing abroad is not very good right now. That said, also, um, one thing under the, Obama, the second Obama administration in particular that uh, really resonated with folks around the world was that an activist here in this country as well was that uh, LGBTQ rights was a specific part of U.S. foreign policy during the second Obama administration. You can certainly have discussions and debates about whether American foreign policy in general is problematic 
and certainly in many ways it is, but with that specific component, it's important. It was very important to activists around the world in the sense that the U.S. was actually, um, you know, putting its resources behind this effort, and it was seen as a very genuine, and seen as a, in many people's eyes, a very genuine and a very, um, very right thing to do. And there was a lot of goodwill, you know, behind it. So that, you know. The, the the core of the Trump administration's LGBTQ specific policy, let me take the T out of that, the LGBTQ uh, foreign policy is this decriminalization effort. But again, it's really, there's some real fundamental questions about whether this effort has actually been successful. Countries are decriminalizing homosexuality. It takes a very long time to get countries to a place to do that, and that involves lots of Work, lots of pragmatic work with activists on the ground and with stakeholders and government officials and so forth. It's not something you just, you know, proclaim one day, and it's not something that, you know, Ambassador Grinnell can just stand up and say, you have to decriminalize homosexuality because I said so in the U.S. that, you know, the U.S. commands you to do it. That's not how global diplomacy works by any, by, at all. So, you know, right. things take right. a very long time, and it's going to take something more than a simple uh, announcement to support the decriminalization of homosexuality to get countries to do something. But I think, you know, going back to the article that I wrote the other day, there's a real hope, I think, that if Biden and Senator Harris win next week, that at a minimum, the U.S. will not be seen as an adversary for advancing LGBTQ rights on a global level. Again, we can have debates about you know, U.S. foreign policy and its impact around the world, but on the issue of LGBTQ rights, I think that, you know, at a minimum, the U.S. will be seen as an ally and not as an adversary. And I always go back to this point when I talk about international issues is that, you know, if the world is watching what happens in the U.S., for better, for worse, what happens here in the U.S., what happens in the White House, uh, what happens, you know, around our country resonates around the world. And, the U.S., again, for better or for worse, is seen as an example. So if we're attacking LGBTQ rights here in this country, folks say in Russia, you know, Vladimir Putin in Russia or, you know, any, in any other country in the world with an authoritarian bent, uh, Poland, Hungary, et cetera, will look to us and say, oh, we're, you know, the U.S. is doing it, so therefore I can do it as well. Right. And that sets a really, really bad example for for the world, um, and you know, Brazil's Bolsonaro is another prime example of this. And I spoke with somebody in Brazil the other day for this story, and you know, Bolsonaro is even worse than Trump in some ways. And so he's right when he says, you know, we're watching what happens in the U.S. very, very closely. And if Trump is reelected, that just gives people like Bolsonaro more license to attack LGBTQ people, attack women, attack any other marginalized group of which you can think. So there's a real concern that Trump's election, re-election, if it does happen, will be a huge setback for not only LGBTQ rights globally, but, you know, the, the broader human rights movement. So there's a real concern that that's what will happen if Trump is re-elected next week. Right. And I think you mentioned in the article also that while uh, the Trump administration uh, put out this initiative on the top level, they also were guilty of supporting 
um, organizations, evangelical organizations that were working the other direction, that were actually funneling mm-hmm. funds and campaign, et cetera, to countries that were not only discriminating and criminalizing LGBTQ people, but um, actively abusing them and um, and horrific activities. Yeah, and I, I think one one example of that um, that you can look at is you know it's not evangelical you know organizations per se, but the U.S. Uh, I want to say two or three years ago, I don't have the exact year, but pulled out of the UN Human Rights Council, which is increasingly seen as a force to promote LGBTQ rights abroad. It had, you know, the Trump administration said it was because of its bias against Israel. Uh, you can certainly, you know, deduce from that that it was part of this foreign policy agenda that the Trump administration is promoting. Um, so that's one example. And I think another example of that, you know, this is maybe more of a domestic issue, but, you know, it certainly has global implications is this uh, commission for inalienable rights that the State Department formed a little bit of, uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is evangelical, he's certainly not a friend of the LGBTQ community, to say the least, uh, formed this commission to kind of, you know, you know, study human rights and kind of have this broader discussion about what that means. And there's folks on this commission who are openly critical of things like marriage equality and, you know, transgender rights. And so that's another indication that the Trump administration over the last four years has supported these global, um, this global campaign to chip away at LGBTQ rights in many countries around the world or to actively block progress on these issues. And so there's been those two examples or two of many cases where we can see the Trump administration actually um, working against global LGBTQ rights, um, regardless of what this quote-unquote decriminalization campaign right. is, is doing. So, you know, actions speak louder than words always, and you just have to look at what this administration has done to see what their true motivations are. Right. I wanted to ask you both, um, because the Trump administration particularly has taken aim at transgender Americans, what is the difference, what will the difference be for transgender Americans if Trump wins versus what will happen if Biden wins? Boy, well, that get ugly. Um, I'll take it first and give it to Michael. The biggest problem, and I was, in, I was, I was heavily invested in the transmilitary uh, ban. Um, uh, you know, not as a journalist, but as an advocate for the community, the trans community. Uh, the biggest thing, and and the elephant in the room in the White House is the evangelical right. These are people like Tony Perkins, James Dobson, um, organizations like uh, the focus on the family of Dobsons and the the people that, that, you know, AFA and and family, you know, Family Research Council, Tony Perkins. Uh, Tony Perkins was actually in the Oval Office 
when the first tweet went out uh, that basically kicked off what became the transgender military service ban. It, it has had a horrible impact. And, and four more years um, would just, it, it would, it would lay waste to the transgender community. I, I mean, aside from the, Aside from the decision that was handed down by the Seventh Court of Appeals, it, it's, there's still too many areas where the transgender community is, quite frankly, uh, under siege, and especially our trans women of color. Uh, unfortunately and sadly, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michael and I both lost a colleague, and I lost a dear friend, and she had been a guest on our show, Monica Roberts. And Monica and I mm-hmm. weekly would talk about you know, exactly how bad it actually is uh, because no one was paying any attention to the humanity of the trans community because the evangelicals don't see trans people uh, as human beings, period. They see them as anomalies. They see them as, you know, simple. They see them as aberrant. They see them basically what I, what my former spouse, Dr. Katya Levesque calls, and this gets her raging because she doesn't like it, but the X factor, you know, people that refer to the trans people, you know, that way. And, and, and my former wife just hates people like that. Uh, she's a trans ally, as am I. Four more years of the Trump administration uh, would see horrendous reversals for the trans community. And the thing that concerns me the most, and this is what really bothers me the most, is that four more years of a Trump administration, the rate of suicide with our youth, our trans kids, our trans kids of color in particular, our Latino, Latinx, and Latino uh, trans men and trans women, our black trans women and trans men, it, it, it would just skyrocket. And it's just unconscionable. Um, and I really, the thought of four more years of the Christian evangelical right having a place at the table inside the Oval Office being able to influence policy that basically denigrates the human and civil rights of not only trans people, but lesbians, gays, bisexual and queer people and intersect people. I, I just, it's offensive. I just, it's flat out mm-hmm. offensive. Michael. Yeah. yeah. I'll add on to what Brody said. I think at a more fundamental level what we've seen out of the Trump administration with regards to transgender Americans is that there's just a lack of recognition of their humanity. I think it's, it's, it's as basic as that. You know, I speak about this issue as a cisgender gay white man with privilege, but, you know, we're talking about this administration actions taking place against not only, you know, against rampant discrimination at a minimum, but also just, you know, skyrocketing rates of violence, uh, murders of uh, transgender women, especially transgender women of color. And I think it just goes back to a real just fundamental lack of recognition of trans-American humanity. And I, 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 when we were thinking about this question just now, we, the Blade did, a couple of weeks ago did a discussion about, um, we moderated a forum about um, what the election means for LGBTQ Latinos um, across the country. I had a really wonderful panel of folks. And one of the points that really resonates with me, um, Maria Roman Taylorson, who is with the Trans Latina Coalition based out of LA, 
brought this up, and I'll just quickly read her quote because it's so prescient to, prescient to what we're talking about. She said, as a trans person, these elections are critical for our survival. It's not only the presidency, but our health is on the ballot. Us living authentically is on the ballot. And it's, you know, again, it goes back to this just real lack of recognition that trans people are, you know, in, are, you know, Americans and entitled to have their basic humanity, you know, respected and, you know, the, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's really as fundamental as that. And the, the prospect of another four years of the Trump administration is horrifying to trans Americans with whom I've spoken, with whom Brody has spoken, I'm sure as well, that the things that we've seen come out of the White House with regards to trans-specific issues, the second the second Trump administration could be even worse if that's even possible for trans Americans. So, um, again, going back to what Maria said on our panel a couple of weeks, the election is the matter of survival for many trans people, and um, the concern is absolutely real. Right. So I want to ask about one other thing um, because we're running out of time. Um, we already talked about what the Trump administration has and McConnell have done to the court system, and we just witnessed what they did in terms of hijacking um, uh, Justice Ginsburg's seat um, with uh, Judge Barrett um, in, in, you know, a complete power play, not unsurprising, completely hypocritical, but a power play nonetheless. Um, if Trump wins, what do you both see as the effect, further effect on the judicial system who do you think is next on the Supreme Court where, uh, who may vacate a seat, uh, either by poor health or otherwise? Yeah, I don't like making predictions. <laughs> um, I, it's just, you know, it's the easy way out of your question, but, you know, nobody knows it's going to happen in the next few days. But I will say if Trump wins a second term in the White House, it's, going to be oh boy um it's um yeah i think i think what we might see is just a further solidification of a conservative majority on the supreme court as well as in the judiciary and the trump administration is going to feel even more empowered to advance these uh policies whether lgbtq rights um immigration is another issue that's very near and dear to my heart having, you know, covered it and experienced it with a friend of mine from Cuba who won asylum this year or was released um, from ICE custody after winning asylum. Um, so, yeah, I think, I just, you, know, it's like, you know, if Trump wins next week, I think it's just going to embolden, it's going to embolden him and his supporters in Congress to further advance their agenda. And it's going to be, not going to be good for many of the communities about which we care and we cover. And so, yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Again, going back to, I don't like to make predictions, but it's not going to end well uh, for our community right. if Trump wins a second term. Yeah, Brody? Remember, remember the 5th of November and the Guy Fawkes incident, and you're going to see a ton of that, only it's going to be remember, remember the 3rd of November. It won't end well. I agree with Michael. I, I'm not going to predict. I, I, the one thing that I would say 
is outside of the obvious. The high court will remain the way it is. My concern will be that Trump will try, if, if the Democrats don't take the Senate and McConnell and his ilk maintain control, Trump will continue to load up the lower courts. And realistically, that's even worse. Yeah, actually, I, I think I think Agreed. the scary scary part of that is um, I, I do think those will be loaded up, um, and the hardest part about it is it will be very hard in the next few years, uh, probably next decade, to un, to unhinge that grasp that they will have on on the courts, and the courts will be rendered essentially useless for equal rights or civil rights. Um, I, I think it'll be a very huge travesty of what will happen uh, judiciously in the United States. So I want to thank you both for being on today and giving us a heads up. Um, we're down to our final three minutes. Any last words or last thoughts uh, you wanted to give to voters out there? Uh, vote. Go vote. Vote early if you can, and uh, it's your right to somebody in this country to do so and go vote. You have no excuse not to. I'll second that. And also for our listeners, uh, if you'd like to read more excellent international coverage for LGBTQI affairs, uh, Michael Labors is the international editor of the Washington You can also find Michael at the Los Angeles Um, and I want to thank our listeners as always, uh, for uh, listening to us uh, go back and forth. Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. Sincerely appreciated. Uh, and Roger, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and likewise, I want to thank you both for being on the show today. I want to thank our listeners. Please do tell your friends, have them uh, subscribe to our podcast on any podcast app. Uh, just do a search for Rated LGBT Radio. We're there. Uh, subscribe. We We'll bring you more engaging programming next week. Um, I do want to share that my son, Jason, turned 18 and voted today for his very first time. And the reason I mention that is I love how he sat down with the ballot, went over every part of it, thoroughly made up his mind. And I found it incredibly inspiring watching him do that. And I'm encouraging every American to get out and do the exact same thing. Um, for and I want to give a shout out to radio. My, yeah. Go no, for it. I want to give a shout out to my cousin. My cousin's son in Florida turned 18 today, also, and uh, he voted as well. So uh, I want to give a give a shout out to my cousin's son Johnny Schroeder for doing the same thing. <laughs> it was very inspiring to see that. So go vote. Go vote. Go vote. Go vote. Go vote, go vote. And listen to us next week. We'll be back then with more Rated LGBT Radio. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.